It happens every day in jobs, marriages, colleges, churches. We all know that once we quit something the first time, it becomes easier the next time. And then quitting a second time makes it easier a third time, and on it goes until quitting becomes a habit. What would be your contribution to the Quitters Anonymous group? What regret do you secretly carry around over a time when you quit and you wonder how your life may look differently if you hadn't? It was the poet John Greenleaf Whittier who said, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. And that certainly describes a Russian man named Dostoevsky. He was a young man, 25 years old, captured the hearts of Russia with his novel Poor Folk. And the fame went right to his head and he drank and he, he partied without restraint. He became unruly and carelessly criticizing the czarist regime. And you did not do that in czarist Russia. He was eventually arrested and sentenced to death by a firing squad. Dressed in a, a white gown, blindfolded, he was led to the prison courtyard with the other defectors. And as he stood waiting to hear the crack of the pistol, instead he heard fast-paced footsteps. And then he heard the announcement that the czar had changed his sentence to ten years of hard labor. Dostoevsky was placed in a Siberian prison where he was allowed only a New Testament to read. And as he read, his life was changed. He met Christ, and upon leaving prison, his flame was lit for Jesus Christ. And he wrote these words, to believe that there's nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more manly, more perfect than Christ. And not only is there nothing, but I tell myself with jealous love that there can be nothing. Dostoevsky returned to civilian life and wrote scores of books about his life in prison and his newfound faith in Christ. Sometime later, he began to slack off in attending church. He neglected Bible study and the fellowship of other believers, and he stopped growing as a Christian. He began to fill his life again with alcohol and partying and compulsive gambling, and what was once a flame burning for Jesus Christ was nothing more than smoldering embers. He died penniless and wasted. Oh, what might have been. Oh, the potential of what he could have become for Christ. Dostoevsky is an example of one who never lived out God's best. The risk of relapse is real for any one of us. I looked up the word relapse in the dictionary, and this is the definition. To fall or slide back into a former state, especially after apparent improvement. Or to slip back into bad ways, backslides. Are you in danger of that? Have you felt yourself kind of slipping? Or have you fallen away? Or do you sense right now you're in a pretty good place and, and no apparent danger is lurking? 
Well, however you might answer those questions, it is a sobering thought to sing those words as we did earlier. Prone to wander, Lord. Prone to leave the God I love. And folks, the playing field is level for as we learned earlier in our study in Joshua, we are all one step away from that. All of us. We're looking today... Joshua again, and we're looking at chapter 23. If you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles. So we're coming to the end of Joshua. We have one more week after this morning. Our theme has been entering God's best, asking the question, what is God asking of us? And are we ready to go ahead with that? Joshua chapter 23, we saw last week Joshua's farewell to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. He now gathers the leaders of the nine and a half tribes to bring a final charge. We find in our text this morning an aging Joshua who is cognizant that his days on earth are nearly over. The last two chapters of this marvelous book of Joshua permit us to hear the final words of a great leader. The heart of God's man is exposed. His concern as he speaks is not for himself, but it's for the people of God. What concerns him? What seems to be on Joshua's heart is the danger of the people having a major relapse. His greatest concern was their spiritual decline. It's a warning against falling away from God, or to put it in a positive way, he provides them with some keys to faithfulness as a means against falling away. And before he passes on, there are things he wants the people to know. And on a day in which we pause at the beginning of the service to remember our, graduate, our graduates, these words are quite potent. Because when we look at what statistics tell us about the age where many people walk away from the church, and more concerning, how many walk away from their faith, it is right in this 18 to 25-year-old age group who have quit, have given up, and said, I don't want anything to do with it. Make no mistake about it, this is a message to all of us this morning from the General Joshua. It is a message to those who desire to finish strong and not give in to the temptation to quit. They are pertinent words to those who do not want to be marked by it might have been. To those who will declare instead, I will not quit again. So look with me at Joshua chapter 23. It says in verse 1. In verse 1, after a long time had passed, now probably this is close to 20 years since the conquering of the land. So after a long time had passed, the verse says, and the Lord had given, rest, given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, meaning that really the nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan. He summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and he said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. Joshua is getting old. Now, I couldn't help myself. I came across this, you know you're getting old when? (laughs) You know you're getting old when everything that works hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You know you're getting old when your knees buckle and your belt doesn't. 
You know you're getting old when your back goes out more than you do. Now the young people are going, I'm not really getting any of this. You will. You know you're getting old when you look forward to a dull evening. Or when most of your dreams at night are reruns. You know you're getting old when your mind makes agreements your body can't keep. (laughs) I get that. Or when you sit in a rocking chair and you can't get it going. (laughs) You know you're getting old when that little old lady you help across the street is your wife. Well, Joshua is old and he's well advanced in years, and I can even picture him leaning on his staff as he brings these final words, this charge to the representatives of the nine and a half tribes. But he might be up there in years, but he hasn't lost a thing in terms of being a leader. His passion for the Lord is strong. He doesn't give in to to self-pity or feelings of uselessness, but he gives himself wholeheartedly to finish strong. And this is quite a sermon he delivers here. I won't do it justice, really. Here's the main theme. It is a call here for loyalty to the Lord because of all he had done for Israel. The main theme of Joshua 23 is a call for loyalty to the Lord because of all he had done for Israel. It is a call for loyalty to the Lord because of all that he has done for us. And I want to surface this morning some characteristics of spiritual relapse or spiritual decline. Chuck Swindoll speaks of signposts of defection. And I'd like to borrow that terminology. We have four signposts. The first signpost of a relapse is that it often happens in time of blessing. Signpost, first signpost of relapse is it often happens in times of blessing. We've seen this before in Joshua. And in verse 3, Joshua highlights God's actions in history. Look at verse 3. He says, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted his inheritance for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain. The nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. What a moment. As the people looked across the land, it was all theirs. Oh, there was still some mopping up to do, but it was all theirs. God graciously brought them to this place. He lavishly poured out his blessing upon them. The land promise goes as far back as Genesis 12, chapter 12. It's now a living reality. After seven years of battles. At last they had gained control of the land. They could break out in song to each other. This land is your land. This land is my land. This is good stuff for them. The people finally had their own identity. They had a place they could call home. So Joshua calls them to remember what God had done for them. That God gets all the credit for the victory. It was God who fought for them, it says. This is the psalmist expressed in Psalm 44, verse 3. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. They entered into God's best for them. And it's times like this 
they are at risk of relapse. Would their complacency set in? Would they let down their guard? Would they return to business as usual? Would they become attracted to the ways of the world and the other nations over affection for God? You see, folks, this was no time for them to kick back and relax. And just as in the military, the soldiers are trained to set up a hasty defense immediately following a victory, so should we be on guard in times of blessing. It's been said this way, when, to- when testings come, we are purified. When prosperity comes, we are vulnerable. Are you enjoying a season of blessing? Watch out. Boredom and complacency can set in. You might be tempted towards something new and exciting. The first sign of relapse, it often occurs in times of blessing. The second sign post of relapse is that relapse occurs gradually. Relapse occurs gradually. Verse 6. Joshua says, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, why was it so important to obey all that is written? Because it is when we turn even ever so slightly from the truth that we begin our gradual descent away from the Lord. They were instructed to stay straight on the path of obedience. They were not to go to the right of compromise or the left of rationalization because that is where spiritual decline gains a foothold. And it's quite subtle, really, as we give in a little over here and we we rationalize a little over there. I mean, let's face it. It is rarely the the big, sudden moves that put our well-being and faith in jeopardy. It's usually those many decisions along the way that make or break us. And trouble begins when we make God's word optional. You see, his commands are not suggestions. They are absolutes. And if the people of Israel were to keep from the edge of disaster, then it requires strict obedience to God's words. I mean, whatever happened to the thought, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We've modified that. And we say, God said it, I believe it, but I'd like a second opinion. We've gotten all kinds of trouble. So Joshua says, be careful. Exercise great care, because one turn to the right, a slight deviation to the left, will sow seeds of defection in your life. And loved ones, in my years of ministry, I can't think of one example where individuals who allowed those seeds to blossom in their life that things actually got better. I can't think of one. Relapse is gradual. Let's not be sloppy and paying attention to the little things in our lives. It started as a seedling on the slopes of the high rocky mountains. For centuries, this giant tree stood tall against the elements. It had overcome the great and violent storms of life. Lightning strikes did not destroy this tree, even though it bore scars of the contest. Winter weather with 60-foot snowfalls and blizzard conditions did not bring this tree down. Avalanches and rock slides could not destroy this tree. 
And though again it bore the scars of the battles for its existence. But you know what finally destroyed this giant tree? A horde of tiny beetles attacked it. Little by little, from the inside outward, it was slowly eaten away and decayed. Finally, it fell in a heap of rotten, useless, dead wood. Good for no purpose at all. Giants of the faith can be slain by the lack of attention to the little things, to those matters on the insides. Don't be sloppy in the little things. A little thing like that lie to get out of a jam. That little thing like that occasional peek at that sketchy sight. That little thing with that praise that starts to go to our heads. Oh, it might begin with a covering of sin rather than owning it. It might, might begin with skipping that time with the Lord day after day, week after week. Slippage may begin with that detour to follow some driving ambition or or listening to a friend who encourages you off the path of right. Slippage may begin with giving in to self-indulged instincts and then the feelings of hypocrisy that are soon to follow. And you say, well, there's hypocrisy in my life. I might as well not do anything about it now. There's nothing I can do. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't buy it. Oh, it may begin with entertaining thoughts of adultery flirting with ways to satisfy our greed, or daring to step so slightly beyond the boundaries of what we know to be right, all of that puts us at risk of relapse. Are you on that slippery slope, loved one? Are you on that slippery slope in any way? Be very strong. Be careful to obey all. In verse 8, he reminds them, and us to hold fast to the Lord your God. And that, hold fast. And that word there, hold fast, it's one word in the original. It's the same word that describes the husband and wife relationship in Genesis 2.24. It is to cleave to God. It is to cling to God. The call is to press on, not kick back. To call to steadfastness rather than drifting into holding patterns. And he reminds them in verse 11 to be very careful to love the Lord your God. It's not that complicated. What is it that reduces the risk of relapse in our lives? Quite simply, obey all, cling to him, and love the Lord. How are we doing? I included we. How are we doing? It is when the very basics of our walk with the Lord that when that isn't neglected, that we soon drift away and we leave ourselves wide open for the next step. Address the little things. Relapse occurs gradually. There's a third signpost of relapse, and that's forsaking God and finding a substitute. It's getting real serious now. Forsaking God and finding a substitute. Look at verse 7. He says, Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. You know what? Israel did just this. They committed idolatry. And sometime later in in Israel's history, as they were slipping away from the Lord, these words were spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And it gets to the root, to the heart of idolatry. 
Listen to these words. The Lord says to them and to us, Jeremiah 2, verse 13. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you see it? What is this saying? It's saying that all that we long for, as God designed us to enjoy, if we refuse to find that satisfaction in him, we will foolishly come up with ways to find that water, to make our own cisterns, to make life work, to try and satisfy the thirst deep within. We've got to deal with the stuff on the inside. Much of the preaching that comes from pulpits today, and one which I must be aware of myself as a preacher of God's Word, is to call people to only change in behavior and not change within in the hearts. That's wrong. That's a disservice. Because we can play the game. See, a preoccupation with visible transgressions without addressing the deeper matters within results in a powerless Christianity that inspires no one and lives remain unchanged. Try harder, do better, is not the call for loyalty that will sustain us and lead us to vibrancy. It is to find the answer to our thirst in Jesus Christ alone. And if it is to depend on him, passionately pursue him, to love him with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind, and if we forsake that, we then dig our own cisterns. We then turn to other things for satisfaction. So Joshua warns them, do not serve other gods. Do not bow down to them. Why in the world would they even consider that? How could they after all that God had done for them? We say, oh, that's Israel for you. Seldom faithful, well-intentioned, up and down, back and forth, return, relapse, return, relapse. Yeah, 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 that was Israel for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how careful are you to address the matters within? Where are your affections? If they have cooled off for the Lord, then no amount of good behavior or effort to try harder will keep you loyal for the long haul. Hear that. Won't do it. Because sooner or later, something else will slip in there and steal your heart from him. And you say, I don't bow down to other gods. There are no statues in my home or, or, or statues on my front lawn that I, that I touch or, or pray to on my way out for the day for good luck. Idolatry? Me? Worshiping false gods? Not a problem. Well, Gordon Dupree put it in perspective. He said it this way. He said, "Is what is most valuable to me? What do I hold to be most irreplaceable? What would I be lost without? What do I think of with most intensity in the long stretches of my thoughts? What is my incentive for living? What gives my work meaning and purpose? This I worship. If anyone 
or anything else is central in my life, that is to have a God before him. To consider someone or something else our most desirable object, that is idolatry. Now, there are legitimate loyalties, there are legitimate loves, but they are not to come before God. We must not make anything or anyone else central in our lives. That means our kids, that means our jobs, that means our ministries, our possessions, our spouse, our personal mission, our traditions, our ambitions, our fear of man, and anything else that you may hold dear in your hearts. God is a jealous God. And he will not allow any other to replace the ultimate love relationship with him. Deal with the thirst within and let it drive you to him. If it doesn't, you are at risk to find that satisfaction in all the wrong places. And really, can any substitute truly satisfy? Won't it only produce disastrous results? Well, that comes to the fourth signpost. The painful consequences of God's discipline. The painful consequences of God's discipline. Notice what Joshua says will happen if the people remove themselves from God's protective care and replace him with lesser affections. Verse 12. But if you turn away. Now that should have grabbed their attention. But if you turn away and ally yourselves. And the word ally is from the same root word as hold fast in verse 8. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, and look at verse 13 at the consequences, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And I wrote in the side note of my Bible, ouch! What tragic results. These are frightening words. The people of Israel would experience the hand of God's discipline if they fall into spiritual relapse. That's what he's saying. And although the blessing and cursing theme of the Old Testament may not always have a direct application to believers today, the principle is the same. It remains. When we remove ourselves from God's protective care, we we go off and do our own thing. We invite painful consequences. We will experience the hand of God's discipline, child of God. Joshua continues, verse 14. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, which is just a nice way of saying I'm about to die. Verse 14 continues. You know with all your heart and soul that not... One of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he's destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Joshua ends this farewell on a negative note. I think he missed the preaching class somewhere there where they might have said, you know, the preacher, you should end kind of with a nice poem and and some feel-good words. (laughs) He doesn't do that. The chapter begins with God's rest and it ends with God's anger. We are uncomfortable 
with unhappy endings. It's worthy to note here, what is the thread that ties these three verses together? The thread is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Verse 14 speaks of God's faithfulness to keep his promises to his people. Not one promise has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. And we love to sing, and we do so with great enthusiasm. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. But do you know what else his faithfulness suggests? We don't like to sing about this too much. God's faithfulness is a two-edged sword because God is faithful both in grace and in judgment. God will bless. He wants to bless, but he will also discipline. And verse 15 speaks to that when it says, but, that's in contrast to God's fulfilling every promise, as he says in verse 14. And then he says, but, Just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, great is thy faithfulness. So the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened. Great is thy faithfulness. Believer, God will ruin your fun if your heart has turned away from him. He will. He loves you That much. If he would do less than that, his would not be a loyal love at all. He would be less than faithful to his promises because he said he disciplines those he loves. Now I see here Joshua up here appealing to two motives for obedience. He appeals to the grace of God at the beginning. Remember what God has done for you. And he appeals to the fear of God as a motive for obedience. If Israel turns away and clings not to Yahweh God, but to these remaining nations, then God will no longer enable them to finish the job, and they will not enjoy the good land he had given them. And God does not warn forever. He will act. Both the grace of God and the fear of God should move the people of God. Both the grace of God and the fear of God should both move the people of God. What is it then that best captures Joshua's sentiment here in in, in chapter 23? Above all else, guard your relationship to God. What are you doing? What am I doing to guard our relationship with Jesus Christ? What do you have in place to reduce the risk of relapse? It can happen to you. It doesn't have to happen, but it can. It can happen to any one of us. Now, I'm sure this is a familiar story, and I'm quite sure I've even shared with you, with this, with you before this story. But it's a true story that bears repeating. Robert Robinson, at the age of 23, was saved out of a background that was wild and godless. He was led to put into print and and, and a poem, his testimony, which we know today in song, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. 
Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his name, I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. He wrote that. Sometime after writing that, the writer of that hymn, Robert Robinson, fell away from the Lord. He left the claims of Christ in the dust, and he lived like a carnal, godless man for many years. One day he was getting up into a chariot and he met up with a woman whose face was buried in a book. She did not know him, nor he her. What are you reading? Robinson asked. Listen to this, the woman answered as she began reading the poem out loud. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And as she read, Robinson sat quietly surrounded by guilts. Then the woman got to the stanza, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Stop! Stop, Robinson yelled. I am that poor, unhappy man who composed that verse many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings I had then. Have you noticed? Backslidden Christians are not joyful Christians. Or they may be for a while, but not in the long haul. I mean, is it really fun messing around in the pig pen? Yet if you smell like pigs, our Father welcomes you home where he can shower you with his goodness. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Are you standing ever so close to that place of defection? Are you kind of just going through the motions of your faith? Is there compromise somewhere in your life? Are you cheating in some area of integrity? Listen, you don't have to remain there. You don't have to remain there. Check out Luke 15 this week. You don't have to remain there. Acknowledge your wrong. Come clean with God. Turn from your ways. Remember, at any point, you can end your relationship with sin. At any point. Falling away is common, tragic, and unnecessary. And it doesn't have to be the final word. It doesn't. Do you need to return home? Is that where you're at? Are you giving yourself to external things but not looking at the matters in the heart? Is that where you are? You need to return to be a thirst and your satisfaction with thirst in Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're at. You do before God. Let him search you on that. Do you need to return? Do you need to return? Because he wants to shower you with his goodness. Let's pray. Lord God, it's one of those messages not really fun to preach, to be honest. Yet necessary. It's necessary because it's in your word. It would have been kind of nice to go from chapter 22 and skip right over to chapter 24. Not that that's going to be much easier, but a little bit. You have it here, and you have it here for a reason. And you want us to hear this this morning. You want me to hear it throughout this week. I pray 
There's someone here this morning that needs to return home. There's someone here this morning that's getting a little sloppy in, their, in, their, in the little things. There's someone here this morning that's kind of going through the motions of their faith, and they got the externals down, but there's a lot of stuff going on on the inside that just reek. God, I pray, maybe we're even in a good place today. May we not let down our guards. May we hear your voice this morning, softly, gently, tenderly calling us. May we hear that this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.